0: Good morning. I love when the instruments have dropped out a couple times this morning in particular and hearing your voices, especially singing, oh, the saints will roar on that final day. We don't often roar at church, do we? In our passage today, we're gonna be hearing about Satan roaring, but the saints also roar in worship. uh, And I love when we hear your voices. I think the Psalms sometimes calling us to shout. We don't shout in church very often. It's kind of sad, I think, isn't it? Yeah, we shout at at basketball games. People were shouting, I could tell from Twitter yesterday, there was some big basketball game or something. And we shout at, anyway, we should shout at church. That's not what I'm here to talk about. All right. Good morning, I'm Kenny. I'm one of our elders at Grace, uh, uh, over at our Grace Fullerton campus, uh, most Sundays, but here with you today. And uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter five, would you? We're at the end of this book. We started uh, studying this letter of Peter uh, and we started at the new year. Uh, which means next Sunday uh, we have a reflection service. Um, That might be a new phrase to you, a new term if you've been coming to uh, Grace since January. What I mean by that is um, when we come to the end of series, a sermon series where we preach through books of the Bible or long books, we'll pause periodically, uh, we will take a Sunday and in place of a a sermon formally from up front, we will call on you to testify to um, how the word of God is bearing fruit in your lives, uh, a verse that Is often on my mind as we come to these reflection services, is this sort of thing Paul would say. He tells these Christians in Thessalonica, we always ought to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. If you pause and you think, first of all, he says, it is right to stop and give God thanks when faith increases and love abounds in the church in increasing measure. And how did Paul know about that? Well, people told stories, right? First of all, faith growing and love increasing was evident and word got back to Paul and he heard these stories and it made him give thanks. And so that's what we're about with these reflection services. That even that our faith would increase, our love would increase as we hear stories of how God's word is stirring that up in others. So I want to ask you this week to consider some homework, some really good homework. If you've been with us through the series, find some time to carve out and sit with First Peter, maybe read back through it in one sitting again. It only takes about twelve minutes maybe 15 if you're a slower reader like me. Um, uh, Or go back through some of your old bulletins. Maybe you're the kind of person, they're all right now stuffed in your Bible and they fall out every time you pick them up. Go back through some of your notes and pray. Say, Lord, how have you been increasing my faith and stirring uh, gospel love in my heart for the church and for the nations through this letter of Peter's? And Lord, might you have something you want me to share to encourage Grace La next Sunday in this service? Maybe you've never done that before. Uh, But you might next week. So would you do that? Otherwise, we've been told there are stocks around here now. So (laughs) otherwise there would be punishment. Where are the stocks? Does anyone know? I don't know. Um, All right. So I want us to think back to the first Sunday we kicked off 1 Peter. Eric Twistleman preached preached this passage for us. But we just chose to start at the end, if you remember. In part, he he started with the intro. But he also started with verse 12 of chapter 5. Look at it. At the close of Peter's letter, Peter actually tells us flat out why he wrote the letter. And it was this. He says, "Uh, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, you could underline that word, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. In other words, everything I've been talking about in this letter, this is the true grace of God despite appearances, He wants Christians to understand what all is included until Jesus comes back in the true grace of God or the true blessing of God, right? If you're standing in the grace of God, that means you're standing in the place of his blessing, right? So grace is God blessing you and working for your good in your life, your undeserved good. And Peter, at the end of his letter says, I've written so that you really understand what all is included in the blessings of God which got me thinking about um, social media and hashtag blessed. All of you who maybe use Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or Snapchat if you're younger, um, hashtag blessed is one of the most ubiquitous uh, hashtags on social media. Um, It's stamped on all sorts of stuff. I looked at Instagram on Thursday, and as of Thursday, uh, over half a billion photos were stamped hashtag blessed, 54 plus billion pictures and I scrolled through the feed of Instagram's hashtag blessed and they were as you would expect they were by and large all the sweetest moments in life right vacation spots from the balcony in Hawaii and graduations and engagements and wedding pictures and newborn babies and gourmet donuts and latte a lot of latte art there's a lot of latte art you're really blessed if you got a really pretty foam on the top of your your coffee but simple pleasures and, and, and big joys and, and, and those things are hashtag blessed usually. On Twitter, uh, tweets tend to be dominated by all the good news announcements of life, right? Gra- I graduated, I got that job, I got that promotion, I got a new car, I got that blank, you know? Um, I'm in a relationship, uh, hashtag blessed. Now, I don't wanna disparage any of those things. Even, even cronuts can deserve a hashtag blessed because they're a tasty thing in the world, an undeserved good that I can experience even though I'm a sinner in a fallen world. All those things are gifts of God and they're good and we should give thanks to them, to God for them, shouldn't we? So, I don't want to throw all that out and just be a curmudgeon. But when Peter says in verse 12... I've written so that you might know that this is the true grace of God. He's not thinking of cronuts and newborn babies and graduations and good news. He's thinking about some hard things, isn't he? Peter doesn't have a Twitter feed, but I decided to take license here and imagine it by way of helping us reflect back through 1 Peter, what has Peter been stamping hashtag blessed on for us in this letter? Here we go. That's his, his account right there. You can follow him this afternoon if you'd like. Um, but seriously, this is right out of Peter's mouth, from his pen. When you're grieved by various trials to test the genuineness of your faith, hashtag blessed. That's what he said. He didn't say hashtag. When mindful of God, keeping God in mind, you endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. Blessed. When you do good and suffer for it, blessed. When you refuse to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but instead of just holding it back and not giving that, you bless, hashtag blessed. When you're zealous for what's good, but you suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed. When you're slandered and reviled for your good behavior in Christ, following the Lord, seeking to obey him and honor him with your life and you're slandered for it, blessed. When you actually share in Christ's sufferings, hashtag blessed, fresh on the heels of the last two Sundays as a church, us remembering the persecuted church in the world as a heavy tweet. When you're insulted for the name of Christ, maybe more of our experience here in the West, hashtag Blessed. All these things, Peter closes this letter by saying, this is the true grace of God despite appearances. I know it doesn't feel like blessed, but it is, and I want you to stand firm in it. That's what Peter is closing this letter saying. And this last paragraph is his last urge to stand firm. And in it, I see at least four things that he says will help us stand firm in the true grace of God, the true and so often difficult Uh, grace of God. Four things. If you're a note taker or an outline liker, here it is right here. Know your enemy. Know your God. Know your company. And know your reward. He wants us to know these things and not forget them. Know your enemy know your God, even more importantly, your company and your reward. I'm gonna spend most of my time on the first one and two and the last two briefly at the end, but let's read our passage and pray that God would actually help us not miss what he has for us. 1 Peter 5, starting in 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen? Let me pray. Uh, Lord, I, I'm struck by all of these things that Peter wants us to know to one degree or another are unseen to our eyes. We can't see this enemy with our eyes himself. Uh, we can't see, God, you uh, with our eyes. One day we will see Jesus with our eyes, but for now we have your word um, our company, our brotherhood around the world who uh, are, are up against, um, are, are the same enemy. We can't see them with our eyes right now, but they can encourage us, and our future reward when Jesus comes back is still unseen for us. But all these unseen things, Lord, this morning are what can make us able, even though our outer nature might feel like it's wasting away. Our inner nature is, can be renewed this morning as we look to these things. So please give us eyes to see these unseen things uh, for the sake of our uh, enduring faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's get after it. Know your enemy. I'm gonna take these out of the order of how Peter goes after them, but I wanna start first with this. Number one, Peter wants us to know our enemy. And we have an unseen enemy, which is, uh, this is new news in his letter. Think about it. His letters talked about a lot of enemies, hasn't it? It's warned us about all kinds of enemies, adversaries. All these tweets just reminded us, people who might harm you and you might suffer at their hands or they might revile you for the sake of Jesus' name or might insult you. All these human adversaries that, that we can face as Christians because we identify ourselves with Jesus. But Peter's also said that we are our own adversaries, right? He's warned us. We still have passions of our flesh, desires, sinful desires that don't disappear when you trust Jesus. And those desires, Peter said, are waging war against your soul, right? So we're our own adversary. There are humans, visible, you know, seeable adversaries. And then right here at the end, Peter pulls back the curtain and says, there's one great adversary that is at work underneath and behind all of these other adversaries, exploiting and using all of these other adversaries. And his name is Satan, the devil. He's our adversary. He's got to stop. When someone tells you there is someone who has a personal vendetta out to take you down that's terrifying isn't it peter says you have an adversary i don't want to assume that we all just agree with that we live in a culture that loves to dismiss anything we can't touch or taste or feel or see uh, with our senses but the bible is unapologetically supernatural isn't it god is spirit He's created more than just the physical, but a spiritual realm. And there are spiritual beings, the Bible says, angels. And some of those, even though we don't get nearly as much detail as we would be curious to know about how this happened and when, but some of those, one, namely Satan, has rebelled against God and actively oppose him by attacking his people. Jesus said that this adversary... His aim is to steal and kill and destroy you. And he's not doing it alone. You go to places like Ephesians 6:12 and it says there are powers and principalities. He's not omnipresent like God. There are many of these and they're at work in this world. Not just in places over there on the other side of the globe where strange stories that you've never experienced happen, but right here in our own lives. You have an enemy. And Peter says a couple things about him. Number one, he's powerful and cunning. He picks his metaphors carefully. That's why he doesn't say, Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring meerkat. He picks a lion, a powerful predator, a hunter, a carnivore with teeth and fangs and muscles and stealth. Fearsome. Peter is not wanting us to underestimate our enemy. Your enemy is like a lion. He wants to take you down like that gazelle. You know, the last one in the herd on those Discovery Channel shows that he just drags behind and he wants to take you down. In fact, Peter says he wants to devour you. And what he wants to devour in particular is your faith. That's how he's going to devour you. He doesn't just want to end your life. He wants to do more than that. He wants to take your faith. Look at verse nine. I say this because it says, resist him. And then very next phrase, it says, firm in your faith. So what is it that the adversary is trying to devour? Your faith. He wants to knock your faith off its feet. And he wants to convince you by whatever means he can that God is not great. He's not worthy of your allegiance, your obedience, your admiration and adoration and trust and worship. He wants to plant the seed of doubt and then water it with whatever means necessary so that you conclude God is not great and you abandon him. Because you see, we are collateral damage in this war. Satan actually cares less about you than God. He hates you because he hates God. He wants to attack God by attacking the people he made in his image whom he is redeeming, seeking to redeem through Jesus' blood. And one of his tactics is fear and intimidation and pain and suffering. One way he snuffs out fear is by crushing hope and convincing the Christian that this can't be the true grace of God. I'm out. Persecuted Church Sunday the last two weeks, for us in Fullerton it was last Sunday, reminded of this, right? Satan's roars are much like First Peter's original audience the roars, were threats and intimidation and violence and persecution. But the devil isn't a one-trick pony. I know he's a lion, mixing metaphors, but he doesn't have one tactic. That's one way he snuffs out faith. But I was struck that here, I think for us, he has some... covert ways of trying to devour our faith you know last Sunday night at the evening of prayer for the persecuted church my daughter Lily and I were in a small group going around to the various little media stations and and in the room that told the story of a woman from Eritrea named Helen Christian woman who she didn't have any copies of the scripture left physically but the guards realized she has it memorized and she's still talking about it and the guy's telling her story retelling it and says the guard said you know what we're just going to have to beat that scripture out of your head and they pummeled her with sticks. Meanwhile, she told them, I don't hate you. But as I was watching this, this was my thought process. At first, I thought, Satan's behind that. He wants to snuff out that woman's faith with fear and pain and terror. And I thought, thank God I don't live in a dangerous place like that. I'm sitting there and the very next thought I had was if I think that because I'm safe from beatings and imprisonment that I'm safe from my enemy, I'm fooling myself. The fury of Satan that's so obviously behind beatings like that, it's the same fury toward God that's behind Satan's tactics and devouring our own faith. You might know, Satan can devour your faith with comfort, and luxury, and hobbies, and entertainment, and all sorts of good hashtag blessed things that we turn into idols like relationships and spouses and children and vacations and retirement. He's more than happy to use all of that for you to just decide that God is irrelevant or peripheral as he is to beat it out of you. In fact, maybe he's happier because it's more covert. Who knows if he's more successful with this, but this is what we're up against. He's devouring our faith. Peter had seen one particular man, this rich young man come to Jesus, earnestly saying, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus invites him to follow him. And he says, just sell your possessions, come follow me. You're almost there, buddy. And Peter watched that guy go away sad because he had a great many possessions. Devoured enemy happy. Paul says to Timothy, the love of money is the root of many evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, devoured. Our enemy's cunning. He's got lots of options. He's been around a long time, a lot longer than you and me. He's seen it all. So let's not underestimate him. On the other hand, I want to say a word about overestimating him as well. Let's not overestimate the devil. We all know, right, I hope, that they're not equal forces clashing like Superman and Batman. I didn't see the movie. I don't know who wins. They're not equal. Satan's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful like God. He cannot do everything and anything he wants. Like that picture, he's leashed. We sang, Martin Luther got it right, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. I love this. One little word shall fell him. <laughs> One little word shall fell him. Peter had seen that, hadn't he? Think about how many times Peter, saw, Peter sees Jesus encounter this man possessed by a legion of demons. He says, who are you? We're legion. We are many. And Jesus says, get out of here. And they flee. They beg him not to throw them into the abyss for eternity, but just into those pigs over there. And they go hurtling off the cliffs into the water. And he sets this man free with a word. So our enemy powerful. But let's put it in perspective What's more than that is if you are in Christ, if you have trusted Christ as Savior, then he's been defanged. Your enemy, his most powerful, intimidating, scary weapon is death, and it's been taken out of his hand. In other words, the most powerful weapon Satan has against you is your impending death and you, the potential of you standing before a holy, righteous, all-powerful God one day on your own merits in your sin. Bible says, in our sin, we all stand condemned before God. By nature, we're children of wrath. But 1 Peter 3.18, which Randy preached a few weeks back, says this, he suffered once, Jesus did, the righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered once for sins so that he might bring us to God. The truth is that because of our sin, we were enemies of God. We're thinking about our enemy, Satan, but we were born enemies of God, bent away from God, deserving his his just wrath. And Colossians 2 says that because of that every single one of us, the record of debt that stands against us, the evidence to to, to that fact, affirming it, is longer than we can count. But Jesus, when he died as our place, righteous for unrighteous, he canceled that record of debt. He nailed it to the cross. And in the next phrase Paul says, when he did that, he disarmed all these rulers and authorities, Satan and all of his cohorts. He disarmed them. He, he, He shot the gun out of their hand, right? He took death away from them as a a tactic and a a fearful weapon. Why? Because now, if you're in Christ, death is gain. (laughs) And he's made a peace treaty with us now because of Jesus, and he offers it to us at no cost to ourselves. We don't pay for it. We don't earn it. He says, you know what you do? You surrender. You admit your helplessness to me, God. God. You acknowledge that the only way that you might stand one day before me and instead of with fear, with joy, is if another takes your place. And you turn from your sin and you ask God to be merciful and forgive you in Jesus' name. And God says he is quick to show mercy. He's waiting to show mercy if you would humble yourself that way i don 't know if you 're sitting in here this morning and you 've never done that. Maybe you have sat dozens of times, a hundred times in your life and heard something to that same effect, and something in your heart ign- knew that 's true of me. And there was a stirring. "I need to do something, and you just stuff that down. You just put that thought out of mind because that 's going to interfere with your plans for your life, and you walked out to lunch and you moved on. i don 't want you to do that this morning. This morning, if you hear God's voice prompting you to humble yourself in this way and turn to the mercy of God through Jesus, you can do that right now. God, here's your prayers. You just stop and think and pray to him. Lord, forgive me for my sin in Jesus' name. I wanna run from my sin. Help me. Call on his name. You'll be saved. Don't leave here this morning without doing that. Find me. Find one of our elders or our leaders here uh, if you do that. Or if you want more, to talk more about that. But the deal is, if you have done that, if God is now for you in Christ, then really, like the Bible says, who can be against you? If death is gained now for you, uh, Satan is rendered ultimately impotent. He can roar, uh, but he can't ultimately devour But Peter's focus here seems to be on the don't underestimate him side, right? So let's not overestimate him here, but he's in warning voice right here. And he says, knowing our enemy is powerful and cunning and has schemes and and he wants to devour my faith. First, he says, be sober-minded and watchful. Here's an image. Two weeks ago, I think in God's providence, I came across a YouTube video. Sometimes YouTube videos are the plan of God. Two weeks ago, I I, I saw this video and the title uh, intrigued me. I'll tell you in a minute, but I clicked on it. And this guy is a big cats trainer. He's got this shelter called Big Cats Rescue uh, Shelter. And all these enclosures like this with lions and tigers and jaguars and and cheetahs. And he's rescued them and rehabilitated them and and gotten them healthy again and trained them. And he can walk into their cages and pet them and interact Interact with them, and I mean, they, they recognize that he's the trainer. But he made this two minute video where he went to every one of these enclosures, and each one he just sort of sat down right outside and pretend like he was tying his shoe or, or eating a sandwich or something. And without fail, every one of these cats, their head perked up when they saw his head turn around, and they sort of snuck down behind brand- trees and rocks and stuff. And every one of them got right up to that fence and lunged at the fence at their trainer. And the title of this video was Never Turn Your Back on a Big Cat. (laughs) I take his word for it. Well, Peter's word for us is never turn your back on your enemy. That's what be sober and watchful is getting at. He's got schemes. Don't be foolish and turn your back. Don't give opportunity for Satan to exploit Bible talks tells us a lot of things that we can do. For example, when you let your anger just fester and you don't reconcile and you don't seek to to move away from bitterness, that can be an opportunity that the devil can seize and move in and exploit in your life. There's all kinds of things like this. That we should ask ourselves, what in my life, what ways do I give opportunity? And do I do I essentially turn my back and, and, and act as if I really don't have an enemy and I'm not in danger? So Peter says, be watchful, don't turn your back. But more than that, verse nine, resist him. Resist him, and it's a strong word. It's the kind of resist, not just sort of self-defense, be prepared that if he does this, you know, you do this, but actively resist, Uh, go on the offense. You go after your enemy and you take him down. You cut off his route, I love Fred's analogy a few weeks back about cutting a fire break, right? So that once all this stuff is burnt right here, you can't come in and burn it. It's already burnt down, right? The same sort of idea, resist him firm in your faith. How do we fight back? It has less to do with trading blows with Satan and being really strong so we can counter, but um, retreating and turning to our omnipotent protector, God, you know, in James chapter four, he says something really similar to these verses about resisting the devil, but listen to what it's sandwiched between. James four, seven, and eight. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This kind of resistance is active, active. It's not fighting with Satan as much as it is pulling ourselves nice and close and near up under the the shelter and the wings of our almighty, compassionate, savior, rescuer, God and looking to him for help. It's about getting better promises in front of us than the lies Satan's gonna throw. Paul says that the shield that we take up metaphorically that extinguishes lies and lures of Satan is the shield of what? Faith. Faith. Trusting in our God. A couple of ways that we do that, that we, we actually draw near to God so that then Satan's attacks are rendered impotent is through worship and through prayer. Do you ever think about worship in part being war? We're actually we're engaging in war when we gather in here and we sing songs. Worship is Resistance. Listen to this, Mike Cosper is a pastor in, in Kentucky at Sojourn Community Church and wrote a book called Rhythms of Grace. The rhythm of grace he's talking about is this weekly gathering that we do every week as a church uh, to corporately worship. And listen to what he says. He says, worship, when we do this, is always a war. The declaration that there is one God and that his name is Jesus and that he's died and risen and will come again is an all-out assault on all the other saviors extended at every level of culture around us. Worship isn't merely a yes to the God who saves, but also a resounding and furious no to the lies that echo in the mountains around us. Isn't that great? Worship is saying no to something as much as it is saying yes to someone. God. Worship is resistance, and it reinforces our faith. It it sends us out of here again into the things we're gonna encounter with our weak with a big view of our God who's bigger than our enemy. But prayer is also war. We we, we fight by prayer. We fight by drawing near to God in prayer. We resist through prayer, and we can't miss that Peter is writing this letter, and Peter would never have forgotten the Gethsemane lesson that he and James and John learned. If you've been with us when we were in the Gospel of Mark, uh, we were in that passage just this last year. But as, as the cross and the arrest and the trial and all this is coming near, Jesus tells Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, Peter. Satan wants to, through these coming fearful events, as I'm arrested and beaten and tried and all that, he wants to crush you and the other disciples like uh, wheat under a, a millstone uh, so that the worthless stuff can fly away and Satan's hoping it's all worthless, your faith, and nothing will remain. And, and Jesus says, but I've prayed for you that you might remain. But then in the garden, they get to Gethsemane and Jesus says to them, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. And what happens? You remember? Jesus goes over here and and prays earnestly with tears and sweat and they go over and they fall asleep. And in the next day, Satan roars and pounces and Jesus resolutely goes to the cross and the disciples all scatter and abandon and deny him, don't they? Peter hasn't forgotten that later, I think, as he's saying this here. Resist him, firm in your faith. He would assume that means pray Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Let's do that. So know your enemy and resist him. But we do it by drawing near to God. So the second thing Peter here wants us to see is uh, that we would see our God. We know our God. Three characteristics or qualities or attributes of God here that Peter points us to are these. Number one, in Christ, you're under his mighty hand. Look at verse six. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The God that you belong to through Jesus is mighty. He's all-powerful. In the Old Testament, when mighty hand of God is talked about, when when it's referred to God's mighty hand being shown, usually it's God showing up in force to rescue his people who are helpless out of the hands of powerful oppressors, like Egypt, right, when he saves them from slavery and rescues them out with a mighty hand with plagues and the Red Sea and all that, and God shows his mighty hand. And Peter says, well, You are to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Christian, you live under the mighty hand of God in the shelter of his wings. Know that, first of all. Your God is powerful, most powerful. But hand in hand, he wants you to know that your mighty God is also a compassionate God. You're in his compassionate hand. Verse 7 You humble yourself, you cast your anxieties on him because this mighty God cares for you. It's such a sweet, simple, personal. The God of eternity, personally, uniquely, individually cares for you and you can cast your particular anxieties, all of them, on him. He's powerful, he's able to deal with them But he also cares, so you can trust that he wants to help you and deal with them. He wants to bear them for you and with you. You matter to him. We're going to sing at the end of this service this beautiful hymn text. We've sung it here, I think, before, but one of the lines is um, That gracious hand on which I live does life and time and death command and has eternal joys to give. Mighty and gracious contains everything in the authority of his hand and has joy to give and is gracious. Peter wants you to not forget either of those. And third, in Christ, that means you're also under his wise hand. I want us to think for a second about what it means that God's wise. His power comes into play here. Uh, His compassionate and his inclination, his love comes into play here, but also his perfect knowledge comes into play. And when all these things are present in the character of God, it means he is um, perfectly wise. Listen to this. J.I. Packer gives this definition of real, real wisdom so that we might think then of what it means for God to be wise. He says, wisdom is the power to see, so that's knowledge, and the inclination to choose. That's desire. What is God... Perfectly able to see and perfectly willing to choose and and eager to choose? Well, the best and highest goals together with the surest means of attaining it. So you package all that together. Here's my other favorite theologian, one of them, Eric Thomas. Summing that up into, into a simpler sentence, God always knows and chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. That is good news when you wrap all this up together. He's able to bring about the best things for you. He knows what is best and the best means of bringing that about for your eternal joy. And good news, he wants to. He cares for you. I see wisdom here in this passage in the word proper in verse six. He says, you humble yourselves and you cast your cares on him so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That means at the right time, at the best time. Best according to who? Best according to God. He will exalt you at the proper time. You can trust him. He knows and can bring about what's best. He's wise. And in light of that, we are to trust him. So knowing Christ uh, in Christ you're under his mighty, compassionate, wise hand, he says, humble yourselves. Cast your cares on him. You know what worry is a form of pride It doesn't seem that way. Pride can look like foolish overconfidence that I got this. I'm in control of my life. I'm not worried because I've got this. But pride can also look like worry because worry at its root is saying, unless I can be sure that I've got this and can see for sure how this is all going to work out and have a guarantee in writing, I can't be at rest. I can't take you at your word, God. And that's pride. And Peter says, cast your cares on him. That's how you humble yourself. You know, I I remember this Bob Newhart skit that I saw years ago that was on Mad TV, which used to be a thing. And, uh, and in this, he was a, a psychologist with a kind of a unique counseling pr- uh, strategy, and he had this woman come in and sit in the chair across from him, and he said, here, I, I only charge $5 cash. You can just pay that up front, and it's pretty simple. You just tell me your problems, and at the end, when you're done, uh, I have two words I want to say to you. I want you to take them to heart and go out here and live accordingly. And she says, well, I have this irrational fear that I'm going to be buried alive. He says, has this ever happened to you? No. (laughs) And he goes, is there any reason? Do you know anyone who wants to bury you alive? No. He goes, okay, I think I know the problem. Are you ready for these two words? She says, should I write them down? I said, no. He says, people tend to remember them. He says, here they are. Stop it. (laughs) Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. And her eyes get kind of big. I want you to hear, Peter's not saying stop it. That's not what cast your cares on him means. Just stop worrying. It's actively taking your greatest fears to the God who is mighty and compassionate and wise and in prayer, bringing those before him and saying, God, this worries me. This causes me fear, but you are mighty. I trust that. You are compassionate and care for me. I trust that. And you're wise. I trust that. So in light of all that, I'm gonna bank on your faithfulness As my creator and my redeemer. And I'm gonna cast this care on you. And then I'm gonna pray that tomorrow, when I try to pull it back off, I can cast it on you again. That's not just saying stop it. And Peter expects that this will be effective and encourages us to do it. So know your enemy, resist him by drawing near to God and casting your cares on him. And then briefly, as we finish, these last two, which are so encouraging number three, know your company. Verse nine, he says, don't forget, know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone in this. You might be up against different different tactics, but you are all being attacked by the same enemy. And I want you to know it. Why? Because God's promised that he's gonna guard you and help you endure in your faith no matter what. But when you see examples of God making good on that promise in the lives of others, you're emboldened to say, God's gonna show up for me as I need him, just as he's showing up for my brotherhood around the world. That's why those, those videos at the Persecuted Church Sunday were encouraging, because you hear these stories, you think, how possibly could that 12-year-old or 15-year-old girl have endured that? Well, it wasn't in her. It was God making good on his promises. And I hear that story and I think, I don't know how I would bear up, but I can go, well, it's probably gonna be the same way. God's gonna bear me up. So know your company. And last, know your reward, verse 10. And and he's been saying this throughout almost every chapter here is that when Jesus comes back, in a little while, all the suffering's gonna be over. And these dark sort of blessings that we talked about at the beginning that his letter is reminding us about, there will be no need for those anymore. No need for trials to sanctify and to refine faith. No need for trials to be one of the means that that the gospel is spread and communicated through the world. When Jesus returns and sets all things right, there will be no need for those kinds of blessings and graces of God anymore. Those will be history. So I want us to pray. Would you bow? we take 30 seconds here, and then we're gonna sing a little bit longer than normal here at the end uh, to give expression uh, to hopefully what God's filling your heart with here this morning, love and faith and joy. But take 30 seconds right now and you talk to God. Maybe cast some of the anxieties that are on your heart this morning on Him or ask Him, what do I need to hear this morning?